everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 14. And we'll be starting in verse 1, and while you're looking for that, I will give you the quick recap and foundation of where we have been so far, and where we will be closing out this series today. We've been dealing with the problem passages, and those would be the passages in the Bible that whenever you come to them, they seem to be contrary to what you would either know about God or what you would like to believe about God. And I know sometimes we like to think that the Bible is an easy book, that all of it flows together and everything is very nice and very simple and all of it just fits so perfectly. But the only way that it does that is if you know everything. And I don't mean you can quote the Bible from cover to cover. I don't mean that you can recite every single thing and tell me all of the parsing and all of the verbs in their original Greek and Hebrew. I mean that if God has revealed by divine knowledge and wisdom Every verse and every chapter and the full meaning, it is one thing to be able to quote the Bible. It is another thing to have God on high reveal it to you. And the problem is, is that because God does not reveal everything to us all at once and probably will not reveal everything to us all at once in this life because it would take an eternity to unravel all of it, what ends up happening is sometimes we come to passages where God has not fully expanded revelation in our lives yet. And he brings to our mind and to our light passages that seem to be in contradiction to his character. And he does it on purpose. Not so that he can confuse us, not so that he can make us stop in our tracks. But what he's doing is he's trying to expand our understanding that he is far more vast than this little concept that I've tried to fit him in. And many times when we come to these passages, we have a tendency to gloss over them or push past them or shove them under the rug because they cause too many difficulties. They raise too many questions in our mind. They make it too difficult to have an answer for the world when they come to us and say, how can you believe in a God who has something like this in his Bible? Well, if you believe all the Bible, how can you believe this? And we start making all of these little gymnastics moves to try and get ourselves out of it. Well, that part's not really the word of God, or that's not really what God meant, or that part is a mistranslation and on and on. And we start making all of these excuses as to why it doesn't belong there so we don't have to confront the reality that maybe we don't know. And what ends up happening is we end up making a problem for the rest of the world. Well, if that part isn't the Word of God, then what about the rest of these parts? You see, the problem is, is when you look at the Word and you take one part out of it and say, because I don't like it, or because it doesn't make sense, or because I can't seem to rationally fit this into how I view God or into how the rest of the Bible presents God, what we end up doing is we remove it, and the moment you remove one verse from the Bible, the rest of it falls apart. That's why God says, I believe in the book of Hebrews, let no one add or remove from this word. What ends up happening is if you remove one word, all of it becomes into question. That's why it says in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed. Not some of it, not parts of it. It doesn't suddenly become God-breathed when you pick it up. Whether you're reading the word or not, whether you're interacting with it or not, whether you like what it says or not, whether it is boring or exciting, whether it seems like it has has value or it's just some useless information about the history of the Israelites, it is all scripture 
is God-breathed and is useful for correction, reproof, and exhortation. I might not understand how it's useful to correct me. I might not understand how it's useful to encourage me. But the reality is, is every verse, regardless of what it is, is useful for all three of those things, whether I understand it or not. And so what we have to do is as we come to the Bible, when we read through it, when we navigate it, when we come to these areas that seem to create problems or questions that we'd rather not deal with, we need to stop hiding from them. We need to stop excusing them. We need to stop trying to explain them away and rather let them cause us discomfort. Let them cause us problems and questions because in most of the questions that we would have, we end up discovering the person and the character of God. You want to know what my favorite thing about Jesus is? Even when people were trying to mess with him, even when they were trying to trick him, even when they were trying to trap him with a trick question, he still let them ask the question. And in every question they ever asked, every time, whether it was sincere or insincere, he always gave an answer that revealed the person and the character of God. Even when it said some leaders of the law came to trap him. Some Pharisees came to ask a question so that they could trap him and show that he wasn't the Christ. On and on. Every single time someone had a question, Jesus would indulge the question and give it a real relational answer that would reveal the person and the character of God. And so we do ourselves a disservice. When we come to these passages that we would rather gloss over than let the questions come to the surface in our mind, and I believe there's so much more in our lives that God would reveal to us in these problem passages. So let's have some more fun with this last verse we're going to deal with today. In the book of Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. And you shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I, God, will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And so they did. What do you do when all of a sudden the Bible says that God shows up and makes things difficult? Because we don't like to deal with the idea that maybe God's going to make things a little bit harder. We don't like that he's going to rush in and catalyze something because it seems contrary to the character of God. In fact, in the very beginning, God says you can go ahead and choose. If you read in the book of Joshua, it says, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In the book of Exodus, Moses comes to all the Israelites and he lays things out before them after they have gone ahead and made the golden calf and he's destroyed that thing. And he says, choose, I have set before you blessing and cursing. Choose this day whom you will serve. On and on, God seems to give choice in the Bible. He, even in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, when he starts out, he says, you can have all these trees, but there's one tree I'm going to put in the middle that I don't want you to touch, and I want you to choose not to eat that tree. I'm going to give you all these other trees. I want you to choose, and all of a sudden we come to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's not really given a choice. It says God rushes in and removes the choice and hardens his heart. Meaning Pharaoh was left without the ability to do anything else other than what his heart had become hard towards. It didn't mean that he had to do things a certain way, but it did mean that no matter what came about, he was going to come against Israel in that. What do you do when all of a sudden we talk about this God who gives you freedom of will, freedom of choice. He doesn't force you to do anything. He is a perfect gentleman. Have you ever heard these terms before about God? He'll not force you to do anything that you don't want to do. He'll not come into your and force you to go and follow him. He'll not make you follow him. He'll not make you leave. And then all of a sudden, God shows up and tells Moses, I'll harden his heart. 
I'll make sure that he can't come to me. I'll make sure that he's not soft enough that he can hear my voice. I'll make sure that he's not tender enough to feel the touch of my spirit so that he repents. I'll make sure that he cannot become keenly aware of the vastness and the greatness of my glory so that he rebels against me. What do you do when all of a sudden it looks like God takes away someone's choice? Because the problem is, is once you read that passage, and you can't get rid of it. You can't make it say, well, God didn't really mean he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He meant that, or God wasn't really going to, or God didn't actually... See, the problem is once God does it once, how do you know he's not doing it to you? How do you know God hasn't taken away your choice? How do you God hasn't taken away your free will? And then now we go to another part of the problem. See, if God has taken away someone's free will for a moment, well, what happened in the Garden of Eden? Did that mean he made Adam and Eve sin? Does that mean he took away their choice on whether or not they would eat of the tree of life or eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did that mean all of a sudden they had to sin? And if they had to sin, doesn't that mean that God caused sin? And if God caused sin, then that doesn't mean it's very fair because he's the one that caused sin. And now as a result, I shouldn't be held accountable for my sin because he's the one that made. You see what happens when all of a sudden you read one passage and you try and gloss over it real fast? You try and shove that thing off to the, well, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Look at all the things that just spiraled out of control because we took this one moment and looked at a passage where it says God took away choice. It sets everything on the table. It puts everything in jeopardy when you ask a question of God. Now the question really is, do I trust God enough to walk me through this and show me how he loves me enough to show me what he's doing? Or am I going to run away from it, pretend like it doesn't exist? And then when someone comes to me in a crisis of life, in the chaos of all things that come before them, and they're frustrated and broken by life, and they feel as though all hope is lost, and they look at you and they look at me and they say, maybe this is God's fault. I remember there was one point in the Bible where it said God made it happen, and God made Pharaoh sin, and God made Pharaoh do something that was anti-God. Maybe God's the one making... What do you do when you have someone in such a painful place in their life that they feel as all hope is lost and they feel as though they can't even turn to God because in their mind, there's a passage in Scripture that justifies the assumption that it's God's fault they're sinning. Now, we know that's not true, but here's the problem. The question has to be on the table once you see a part in the Bible where it seems as though God has forced someone to sin. Now, I'm not saying God forced Pharaoh to sin. We're going to get to that in a little bit, but before we get to that, let's start out with what, what's really going on here. Look what God says to Moses about this. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Go to the second part right after that. So that I will gain honor. Or another word we like to use more normally is glory. So that I will gain glory over Pharaoh. Why is God so interested in gaining glory over Pharaoh at this moment? Well, at this moment in history, you didn't know I was going to give you a history lesson. And I don't know a lot of history, but I know a little bit as it intersects with the Bible. At this moment in history, Egypt is the superpower of the world. They had the most technology, they had the best tools, they had the most understanding, they had the best education. They're the ones that invented paper. You know where we get that from? Papyrus. They would take these reeds and they'd roll them out and they'd hammer them down and they started making their own alphabet and their own language. That's why we have hieroglyphics. They were the first ones to begin to record history. It wasn't the Israelites who did that. The Israelites still had oral history. They would pass it down. In fact, they didn't even begin writing anything until Moses shows up on the mountain of God and God begins to tell him, here's what you're going to write down. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God begins to give Moses everything that happened before they'd ever gotten to that point. It, Israel lived in a land where they were under the rule of the absolute superpower 
of the world. No one could stand against the armies of Pharaoh. And in fact, at that time, even though they had all these gods, have you ever heard of the gods of Egypt? Osiris and Anubis and Ra and all these other really cool god names that just look like they're cartoon characters in a book and all these other things. Did you know that Pharaoh was also a god? You had all the gods of Egypt, but whoever was the Pharaoh was also God incarnate. And so whatever God said was law. I remember watching this cartoon, and I love it. It was so well done by DreamWorks. It is fantastic. They've got great music in there. I think Mariah Carey sang one of the songs. That's probably why it's so good. But it was called Prince of Egypt. And they captured so well how Pharaoh viewed himself. Because there comes this one point where he takes a ring off. And the ring in the Bible is always in type of authority. And he puts it on Moses' hand. And he looks at Moses and says, I am the law. I am the rising and the setting sun. What's that sound like? I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning. And You want to know what Pharaoh thought about himself? I am the beginning and the end. There's none before me. There's none after me. There's none like me. I am God. And none can stand against my will, which is why I have amassed this army, and I have built edifices and obelisks to me. You want to know who doesn't share well? His glory. You want to know who doesn't share things that belong only to him? You ever heard this phrase, God is a jealous God? I thought jealousy was bad. Not really. Jealousy is actually a very, very good thing because jealousy is the right feeling. Envy and covetousness, on the other hand, is the wrong feeling. Let me give you the difference between the two. Jealousy is when something belongs to you and it's being given to someone it doesn't belong to. Covetousness is when you see something that you would like to have for yourself, but you have no right to have it. That's why he uses in the Bible the really good example, do not covet your neighbor's wife. It's his wife or her husband, not your wife or your husband. So for you to be jealous of that person is actually covetousness because you're trying to take something for yourself that you have no right to. God is a jealous God, and we are allowed to be jealous people because if Christina starts talking to another guy the way she's supposed to talk to me, or if she starts spending all her intimate time watching TV shows that give a better idea of romance than maybe what I have in our marriage, all of a sudden I get to be jealous because her affections are going somewhere else other than me. If I start talking to a woman... And maybe I'm not flirting with her, but it looks as though I am. She is allowed to be jealous and come and call me to account and say, that doesn't belong to anybody but me. She is allowed to be jealous for what belongs. God is allowed to be jealous for what belongs to him and him alone. And since he created everybody, and since his desire is for all his children to be reconciled to him, when one of his children start playing at his place, he doesn't take it very well. Because when God's in charge, things go well. When you and I are in charge, things don't go so well. If you've been married or if you've had friends in your life, you understand that when you can try and do things your way without calling God into the whole situation, it has a tendency to not go very well. You might accomplish the end goal you were trying to get to, but in the process, you destroy the relationship. I love when husbands always come to the marriage and there's an argument and they look at the wife and say, I'm the head of the household. You're the dead of the household. Like, that's not going to... And that might be biblically true, but what ends up happening is they end up running in to use the phrase of God without actually calling in the God who wrote the phrase to say, how are you going to use this headship of the household so that it honors your wife, so that it blesses your kids, even if they disagree with what you're doing. And what ends up happening is Pharaoh, created in God's image, runs off and says, this is mine. 
Look at all this land I have. Look at all this technology I have created. Look at all these people I've blessed. Look at all these servants I had. These are mine because I am God. And God looks at that and says, Pharaoh, if you would have just humbled yourself, this could have gone a much different way. And so he looks at him and says, Pharaoh, I'm going to teach you the difference between a king and me. He doesn't even say a God. He says, I'm going to teach you the difference between a king and me because there's only one God. He says, there's nothing around me. There's nothing beside me. There's nothing in my orbit as God. Pharaoh, I'm going to teach you how I really look because you've missed it so bad. I don't have a problem with you being king. I don't have a problem with you ruling. I have a problem with you when you try and step in my realm and start taking over what is rightfully mine. Everything in the Bible, and this is difficult for us to swallow, everything in the Bible, everything in your life, is meant to glorify and exalt God. When you receive a blessing, it is meant to glorify and exalt God. When something good happens in your life, it is meant to glorify and exalt God. When something bad happens in your life, whether it's a bad decision you made, whether it's the enemy attacking you, or whether it is God testing you, when something chaotic or painful happens in your life, the result is ultimately to glorify God. Whether it is I am repentant and he forgives me, there's the glory of God. Whether it's Satan attacking me and God protects me, there's the glory of God. Or whether it is God testing me and trying me to remove things out of me so that I look more like him, there then is the glory of God. And so everything in the Bible, from cover to cover, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-20, is meant to glorify God. That's why you have this part in the Bible that says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all unto the glory of God, which is why I don't eat as much as I used to. Tough to glorify God when you're eating like a glutton. I don't get to eat a whole pizza by myself anymore, partially because I'd be sick, partially because God said, I don't look like that. And I said, but God, it's delicious. He said, I don't look like a cow shoving food in my... There, there, there's something to how we live our life when you're pumping gas, when you're getting up in the morning, when you're sitting down on the couch at night and just enjoying and relaxing and watching TV, when you turn on music, when you read a book, when you go out for coffee with your friends, when you go out for a dinner with your friends, when you lay your head down to every aspect ought to be in glory of God. How do we do that? I'm not, I'm not saying that every single time you, you go to make your pot of coffee in the morning. All right, God, how many scoops of coffee do you want me to put in here? Uh, if it's three, that'll glorify you. If it's four, that'll glorify you. I'm not asking you to be silly about this, all right? There, there is some horse sense involved with this. The idea is that as I live my life, God has a right to interrupt every single thing I'm doing and reorient whatever I'm doing so that my focus now goes to him. So that if I'm sitting down and getting ready to enjoy a meal, and that's perfectly fine, that God is allowed to come and interrupt the meal and say, I'm glad you're about to have a good meal. I'm really excited about the steak or chicken, or if you're vegan and you're eating kale, God will be excited about that with you too. I don't know why. And he'll say, even though you're getting ready to eat a meal, I want you to remember I'm the one that blessed you with this meal. Not so that you feel bad, not so that you feel guilty, but I just want you to remember who sustains you. So that when you're breathing in your normal day and you're going about your normal day, God comes in and interrupts and says, I know that you're doing your day and you're busy, but right now I just want to remind you that the only reason that you're not burning by the sun right now is because I've sent a soft, cool breeze to brush across your face so that you can cool down. I know you're just enjoying your time with your children, or I know you're enjoying driving down the road, or whatever it is, God says, I just want to be able to to interrupt and remind you that that's my fault. So that I'm reminded that 
Without him, I have nothing. I can't imagine what it would be to live like if Judah and I had such a falling out or if Leo and I had such a falling out that when he grows up and leaves home as a young man, that he never reaches out to me one more time. Not only that, but that he leaves home and looks me in the eyes and says, we're done, we're through, I want nothing to do with you. I cannot imagine the sorrow that I would feel in losing that relationship. What do you think God experiences when we ignore him? All things to the glory and honor of God. Preacher, what's that got to do with hardening Pharaoh's heart? I'll get there in just a minute. I promise to stick with me and I'll show you what's happening. But you've got to stay with me just a little longer. Sometimes people think, well, God's just a glory hog. In fact, one of the worst things I've ever heard, ever said about God was someone who had been hurt by the church, not hurt by God, hurt by a church, abused, preyed upon. The leadership in that church, I'm not going to list the church, I'm going to name the church. There's plenty of churches out there that fail and do this. But a church had preyed upon this person and they ended up naming God a glory whore, that he would do anything and basically sell himself out to get all the glory he could. When you've been so hurt by the church, and you know the truth that all glory belongs to God. You can kind of get a skewed look at that. Let's go back to me and my estranged future son, Leo, who I rebuke in the name of Jesus. is not going to be estranged from me. Neither is Judah. We're just doing a hypothetical. I can't really bless his life if he's cut himself off from me. I can't really pour into his life and encourage him if he's completely separated himself from me. I can't really be there in his crisis when he has completely isolated himself from me. No matter how much I want to, no matter how much I desire to, when he has completely isolated himself from me, he has blocked off my ability because I respect his decision to come to his rescue, to be there as a support or an encouraging or a correction or a blessing or even something to sustain him in the midst of pain. But what ends up happening if all he does is pick up the phone and just say, Dad, can I talk? What dad wouldn't rush? The best example I have is so silly. It's not even that profound. It's just it was after church one day. I was in college. I had no money. And my friends were going out to eat. And I said I'd go out with them. I didn't say I'd go out to eat with them because that cost money. And I had no money. My dad walks up to me and hands me $20 and says, bring me home the change. I said, you know how I eat. I don't expect there to be a lot of change, he said to me. I said, all right. I didn't ask him for anything, but he was there in my life. He heard my friends going out to eat, and he saw me, who just wanted to be with my friends, and I had this relationship with him that my dad actually likes me sometimes, even though I'm such a brat to him every now and then, and he just walks up to me and hands me $20, says, just bring me the change. I said, there might be no change, Dad. I got to leave a tip. He said, that's all right. Enjoy your time with you. Do you understand God just wants to be around you? But when I cut myself off, when I become so self-centered that I stop giving him what he's actually due, what ends up happening is the relationship begins to fall apart. See, we think God takes all the glory for himself so that he can just look over us as a tyrant, so that he can look on us and say, I'm God, you're not. I'm the one who gets to create the universe, and you're not. And let me do all these things, and I'm the one who gets all the glory, and you get nothing. And we look at God as though he's a tyrant. You want to know why we do that? Because people are awful. 
And most of us have had a bad experience with a mom or a dad or a leader or a teacher or someone in a position of authority. And then all of a sudden you hear that God is the absolute authority. And then on top of that, you hear that God says, I demand all glory and honor for myself. And what ends up happening is we take the broken authority that we've had in our life and we project it onto God and we become afraid of him and say, even though I'm going to heaven, God, I can't give you glory because that's your, something you're just going to use so that you can crush me and do whatever you want to me. And the last time someone had authority in my life and I gave them honor and praise, they used it to break me. Giving glory to God always ends more like it did with me and my dad. That the natural response that when I give the correct honor is the natural response of a father who just wants to be with his children who wants to bless his children, who wants to play with his children, who wants to be there when his children are crying so he can hold them, who wants to be there when his children are going through a hard time so that he can sustain them. He might not fix the problem I'm going through, but when I glorify God, what I do is I open up an avenue for him to be a part of my life so that when things are chaotic, he can come in and steady me, so that when I feel so broken that I can't even lift myself up anymore, he'll just hold me in his hands as I recover, so that when it feels like all I do is go to bed crying and wake up crying and I can't seem to stop the tears, he'll show up next to my bedside and just caress my head and say, it's okay. He won't tell me to stop crying or to get over it. He'll say, you just take as much time as you need to get through this and I'll be here with you. And on with all these, that when I give God the glory he is due and I acknowledge him as God, all of a sudden he starts living as God in my life. Giving glory to God is not about him being self-centered. It's about putting him where he belongs in my life so that he has permission to be God in my life. If you're not willing to treat him as God in your life, don't expect him to act as God in your life. That's tough. Preacher, what's that got to do with hardening Pharaoh's heart? Most of us, when we read that passage, now let's get to this part. Remember, everything with God is about his glory and honor. And when his glory and honor is is in place, when he's being treated as God, he gets to act as God in someone's life. So remember, when he says, I will gain glory or honor over Pharaoh, what he's saying is Pharaoh will finally start seeing that I'm God, and then I'll actually get to be God to him. We think God's being bitter. Pharaoh, I'm going to show you who God is. Then that's part of it. It is God saying, I'll show you what God really looks like, Pharaoh. But the other part of it is always where his heart is. How can I bring the creation that reflects my glory back into relationship with me. Did you know that in the book of Psalms, I believe, God says, I will reconcile my daughter Pharaoh to myself or my daughter Egypt to myself. I thought Israel was. God's desire is always to reconcile everybody to him. Now let's go to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We read that passage, and I think it sometimes too because I forget very, very easily. But have you ever read that passage and you thought, this is God talking to Moses in the burning bush. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And you're thinking, well, okay, Moses is going to go to Pharaoh. He's going to say, let my people go. Pharaoh's going to say no because God's already hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that's not really fair. Maybe Pharaoh would have let them go. Why would God do that before the plagues even happen when he hasn't even shown himself to be God to Pharaoh? Why would he do that? The reality is, is when God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, it's after all the plagues. 
God's already shown who he is, and Pharaoh still doesn't like that God is God. Let's talk about what God actually says about Pharaoh in the burning bush. Pharaoh is sitting himself as God. I think I just had a stroke. What in the world? Let's start over real fast. Let's go back to the burning bush. I think that's what I was talking about before I seized in my own brain. I don't know what happened right there. Moses and God are talking in the burning bush. And God tells Moses, I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can worship me. And we know all the rigmarole that happens there. Moses and God are going back and forth. God, I don't want to. God says, you can go. God, I'm not a very good speaker. I'll send your brother with you. God, I don't want to do this. God gets mad at Moses and says, I'm the one who gave you your tongue. Get over it. Go and do what I'm telling you to do. On and on, back and forth. But right in the middle in there. Because remember, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court. Moses knows how cocky and arrogant Pharaoh can be. Moses knows if I go walking in there as a wanted man for murder, not only am I dead, but I'm going to get laughed out of the court when I show up with some nameless God demanding that Israel go out and do what they want. What in the world am I supposed to do? And right there, God looks at Moses and says, you tell him I am that I am sent you. That name holds a lot to it, but let me give you the really brief J.J. Bradley version of what God says when he says, I am that I am. He's literally saying, only I have self-existence. I didn't need anyone to birth me. Go ask Pharaoh where his mom is. I didn't need anybody to take care of me and help me grow up. Go ask Pharaoh where his educators are and remind him that I didn't need any of that. And in there he says, go and ask him to be, let the people go. And then there's this little passage that I'd never really noticed before. And God says, I think Pharaoh will say no. And that's like my translation of it, but that's what the words are. He looks at Moses and says, tell him to let my people go. And then he slides in there. I'm pretty sure he's going to tell you no. First of all, I hate when God says, I think, or I'm pretty sure, or this is the most likely scenario. First, you're God. You're supposed to know everything. Why are you saying this? Why in the world would you say, I think Pharaoh's going to say no to you? God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart until after the plagues. Now, what's going on? When God says, I think. Let's have a really fun non-participation, but answer in your head, because I don't want to rat anybody out if you're struggling with this, and I don't want to embarrass you. But is God all-powerful? Don't say yes or no. Don't raise your hand. Don't agree. You're just thinking to yourself. Is God everywhere at all times? Is there anything so difficult that God cannot do it? And I'm not talking about the silly question when people are like, well, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Shut up. That's a dumb question. Does God know everything? Now, I would say yes. And all of a sudden, we've got this passage where God says, I think Pharaoh's going to say no. God, why are you guessing? If you know everything, why are you guessing? Let me expand a little bit of how God knows everything. When you woke up this morning, you had some choices. You said, I can put on a button-down shirt, or I can put on a T-shirt. I can put on some flats if you're ladies, or I can put on some heels. I can go ahead and put on a blouse, or I can put on a top. I don't know the difference between those, but you call them different things, so you go ahead and pick what those are. You had choices that you made today, and you had choices that you made yesterday, and on and on and on. Let me explain how vast God sees everything. Before you picked what you were going to wear today, God saw all three choices that you were considering making. And from those three choices, exploded out a series of other choices. 
if you had chose one, it would have created three other different choices about you. If you had chosen two, it would have created three other different choices about that. And then you would have chosen three, and that would have exploded out into three more. And now we go into these. If you chose one, one, then that would explode out into another series of choices. And do you see how all of a sudden everything starts spidering out into a series of infinite decisions and choices? We think that when it comes to the way we live our lives, God just watches and says, you're going to pick one and two and three and four, when the reality is, is because God has given you free will, God sees the infinite number of choices you will and can make and permits in those infinite number of choices you the freedom to pick. Now that is overwhelming. That is much more complicated than, well, God just told you you're going to do this. Pretty sure that still doesn't help us rectify the part where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Plague one, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. Somewhere in the infinite number of choices, God knew Pharaoh could say yes. He said, Moses, just be aware, he's most likely going to say no. But somewhere in there, Moses, there's a part where his heart and soul is tender enough to me that he will say yes. Plague two, no. Plague three, no. Plague four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. No, 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 no. God, I thought Pharaoh might say yes. He might say yes. He probably will say no, Moses. Somewhere in the infinite number of choices, Moses, there is a line, a vein, where Pharaoh acknowledges me as God before we get to the most awful plague I will visit upon Egypt. We come to the tenth plague. Angel of death. And Pharaoh wakes up the next morning to his oldest son dead. Moses comes back in and says, can we leave? Pharaoh finally says, yes. I guarantee you God wanted Pharaoh to say yes at the first one. God would have liked Pharaoh to say yes before the plagues even started. But Pharaoh was so full of himself thinking he was deity and he was God and he could stand toe-to-toe with Almighty God that he said, no, I can handle this. I can handle the river becoming blood. I can handle all of this. I can handle the frogs, flies, all the livestock dead. I can handle the darkness. I can handle the hail coming down. I can handle all of this, Moses. And then all of a sudden, God comes and takes life. And Pharaoh says, I can't handle it anymore. And the Israelites leave. You ever notice how we just don't learn lessons very well as people? I I don't understand it. Judah is brilliant. He is so smart. It is infuriating. I fear him when he is 10 years old because I'm having a hard time keeping up with him now. When he's 10 years old, not only will he be smarter than me, he'll be taller than me. Then what do I do? I'll have to rely on Leo to defend me from my eldest son, which is good because Leo's the tougher of the two. He's the one that just runs through things like a brick wall. I don't understand. I'm so glad Judah is tender. Maybe he'll be kind to me when he's taller than me and smarter than me and all these other things better than me. I will send my wife, whom they probably love more than me, on my behalf to defend my life. Thanks for the reminder, Pat. You ever notice how once the punishment's over, we really forget real fast? 
Judah, don't do that. Don't touch that. Why do I have to repeat myself to you three, four, five times? Didn't you hear me the first time? Yes. Well, why didn't you listen to me? I, I don't know. Well, listen to me the first time, okay? Now we're at the fifth time, and I've got to put you in time out, or I've got to take a toy away. I don't want to take a toy away. I like you having the toy. Go to your room. He goes to his room. He cries. He comes out. The next day comes up, and he's doing pretty well. And then all of a sudden, Judah, stop that. Judah, stop. Judah, stop that. Judah, stop. Why am I telling you five? I don't know, Dad. Do you remember yesterday when I told you to listen to me on the first time? Yes. Well, why aren't you listening to me on the first time? I don't know. Do you remember yesterday when I told you to listen to me on the first time? And we got to the sixth time, and I had to take away Vera. Vera is not the real dog. That is the do- name of my dog, but he has a stuffed animal named Vera. And his punishment sometimes is I take his stuffed animal away, which causes him to break into the ground, into the most woeful sorrow you will ever see in your life. And I look, do you want me to take Vera away again? No, Dad, please don't. And the tears start coming down his face. I'm like, how did you forget since yesterday that I don't want you to do this for a specific reason so that I can protect you or so that I can teach you or so that I can help you grow or so that you don't hurt yourself and now you're doing the same thing less than 24 hours later and I have to exact the same consequence. Now I'm going to have to up the ante because it didn't make enough of an impression so that you would stop. What in the world is happening, Jude? He's just being human. Because don't worry, you and I do it too. We screw something up, we mouth off to our spouse in the middle of a fight, or we get really mad and we mouth off to our friends in a way that's ungodly, or we do some type of sin, and on and on and on, and then all of a sudden the Spirit of God begins to touch our heart, and we feel broken inside because we realize not only have we hurt the heart of God, but we've hurt a dear friend or family member that he's given to us, and we go back and repent, and we ask for forgiveness, and then we ask for forgiveness from God, and then the next time that an argument like that comes up, we shoot our mouth off again. Don't you remember what happened last time? Don't you remember the pain it put you through when going through this, when you tried to do things your own? You want to know why Pharaoh all of a sudden forgot? Because he's human. His whole life he'd lived as though he were God. And now the consequence of him trying to be God has been removed because Israel's left. When God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart, two things are happening. Number one, just like you and I, when we end up committing the exact same sin, again, that we felt so much sorrow and pain over committing in the first place, there's the first thing that's happening. Here is the unfortunate second thing that has happened when God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Remember the infinite number of choices and possibilities that we live with every day, that God sees every single one of them in all of their fullness, in all of their recourse in all of their repercussions. Not one single aspect of any decision that you or I could make escapes his purview. When God looks at Pharaoh and says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, it's because in the infinite number of choices that God looked down through, in every single different decision Pharaoh could have made, at the end of it, Pharaoh's final decision was always I'm going to take Israel back to me. When God said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, what he said was, there's nothing outside of this option anymore. So rather than waiting for his heart to slowly harden, rather than letting it go and take all of this time before it finally gets there, I'm going to expedite things 
and I'm going to solidify it now. Preacher, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair, does it? That God would reach through the future, accelerate it into the present, solidify the unescapable reality that Pharaoh was going to come to in that singular decision. Doesn't seem fair, does it? Except for the fact that right after he says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart, he says, I will gain glory and honor. You ever sing that song as a kid? Lift Jesus higher. Lift, Jesus. Lift him up for the world to see. What's it say? He said, if I be lifted up for the earth, I will draw men unto me. What's God saying? He says, when I exert my glory and honor, when I am lifted high above Pharaoh, only then will he finally have an opportunity to be drawn to me. See, we think what God's doing right there is he is cursing Pharaoh. I'm going to harden his heart so that he only has this option. What he's doing is he's expediting an inescapable reality so that he can take Pharaoh rather than having to go through the day in the day out as his heart slowly hardens into something that it's going to be no matter what Pharaoh does because those are all the infinite decisions that Pharaoh will make. What God decides to do is rather than make Pharaoh wait for all of that, God expedites it so that he can quickly get to the part where he says, Pharaoh, I'd like you to be with me instead. The glory of God always has a natural reaction. The glory of God always has a natural response. It is either to run to him or run away from him. When God says, I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and I will gain glory, what he's saying is, in all possibilities, this is the best chance Pharaoh has to be reconciled to me. The only time God forces any decision in anyone is when in the infinite of our minds and choices, it will always end at the exact same point because it's who we are. That is the only time God will ever force a choice. In forcing that choice, he always follows it with the opportunity to be redeemed. There is not one place in history, you will not find one place in the Bible where God forces a choice and does not follow it with redemption. In fact, in the Bible, you will only find two places where this occurs, which means it's a rare thing. And personally, I do not believe the Bible is a book of exceptions. I believe it's a book of examples, which means when God is doing something in there, if he does it a lot, I should probably see it a lot in my life nowadays. If he doesn't do it a lot, then it probably shouldn't happen very often. I have a hard time when I hear a lot of people saying that they went to heaven because you really only see about two or three times. That happens in the whole of the Bible. And now all of a sudden there's 30, 70, 80,000 people going to and from heaven. I just have a hard time with that. I don't want to call them a liar, but it doesn't seem to measure up with how God does things in the Bible. There's only two times God forces a choice in the Bible. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and Satan entered into the heart of Judas. Nowhere else. Two times God forces a choice. Both times God offered redemption. You want to know how I know? Because in the first one, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I will gain glory. Remember, when God receives glory, it always comes with the ability to be redeemed to him. It is never absent that. In the second one with Judas, what ends up happening? 
right after he betrays Jesus, his heart had become so hard and calloused by greed and desire. He betrays Jesus, and almost instantly after that, he rushes back and says, I've betrayed innocent blood. What's he do? He throws the silver to them. You understand what that is? What does repentance almost always require? It almost always has some type of restoration. So he's putting things back how they were supposed to be. But here's the problem with Judas. He was so overcome, overridden with guilt that rather than running to the feet of the cross, he ran to the noose. There's nowhere in the Bible that says that Judas had to die without redemption. It only says that a disciple was going to betray him. And even then, for a brief moment where God looks through all the annals of what Judas could choose and sees that it comes to a singular conclusion, betrayal. As soon as it happens, what does God do but rush in and begin to soften the heart of Judas again? Keep something in mind. Judas had walked with Christ for three years. Judas had been sent out by Jesus to heal to raise the dead, to open blind eyes. He had done that before Jesus went to the cross. He had done that with the other disciples. They went out and did miracle upon miracle before Jesus even ascended to heaven. He was part of that. He knew Jesus. He was close to Jesus. He had built a friendship with Jesus. And for a moment in time, the absolute callousness of his life comes to a point, and God, right after that point happens, immediately gives the opportunity for hope. The sad part about Judas is he decided to reject him. I don't know if he's in heaven or hell because I know he ran out and committed suicide. I don't know if as he was dying, all of a sudden he realized that he was doing something foolish and begged God for forgiveness and wasn't unable to undo what he had sent his life on at that point. I'm not going to pretend to figure that out. All I can tell you is that God never forces a choice unless two things are there. One, in the infinite number of choices, it's always going to end at that one. And two, at the end of that choice, God will always give an opportunity for redemption. Do not misunderstand. It is rare when God does that. But you cannot escape the fact that there are times when God has and does do that. The question is how are we going to deal with it when someone comes up to us so lost and so hopeless they say they feel as though their whole life is crumbling apart and they can't do anything else and they just feel as though there is no escape. What are we going to do? Are we going to say, no, just gloss over that. Don't worry about it. God's not forcing this on you. Or are we going to rush to the end and say, listen, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know if God's doing it to you. I don't know if it's your own fault. I don't know if it's Satan doing it to you. But I do know one thing that can come at the end of this, regardless of which three of those it is. I do know that whether or not it's God doing this to you and causing the forcing, whether it's Satan doing this to you because he's attacking you, or whether it's your own fault, these consequences happen have happened, I do know there is one constant that I can bring to the end, and that is always redemption. That is always hope. That is always restoration. The end does not have to be where you are stuck. The end is always given by God as one of hope, one of promise, and one of forgiveness. When we hide from questions like these, you want to know what we rob people sometimes of? When God wants to bring them home. Some of the most hurt people I've ever met were people who grew up in a church and were told they weren't allowed to ask questions. They weren't allowed to have doubts. John the baptizer had doubts. 
Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Then he gets thrown in prison, testifying on behalf of Jesus. Then while he's in prison, sends his disciples, Jesus, are you really Christ? Because I'm about to die. If he had doubts and Jesus didn't scold him for it. Is anybody in here baptized about 10,000 people in a nasty river? I haven't. He's a better Christian than I am, I would say. And yet, we need to stop treating people that when they have questions or when they have doubts, oh, that's so awful. How could you do that? How can you not trust God so much? How about it's just an opportunity where God's trying to have a conversation to bring them deeper with him? I don't want this to be a church where you can't ask questions. I don't want this to be a church where you can't challenge me on the Bible. I don't want this to be a church where you can't come to me and say, it sounded like you said something that wasn't biblical. I want this to be a church that when there is difficulty or questions or doubt, or when it sounds like I've said something that doesn't actually fit with the person and character of God, you have the ability to come to me with the word of God in kindness and in mercy and try and restore me. God help us that we have created in this country celebrity pastors who are unquestionable, unchallengeable. You want to know what happens when you have a leader that you can't question? You set the groundwork for a cult. I know it makes people uncomfortable to ask questions and challenge my sermons. But the reality is, is if I don't leave that open, we might as well just set the foundation for me to make my way towards the head of a cult. Jesus let people question him. Who are we to say that people can't question us?